Welcome to the SAS Mining Podcast. At SAS Mining, we are bringing you into conversations with today's industry leaders in blockchain and cryptocurrency. Our goal with this podcast is to improve the understanding and adoption of blockchain and cryptocurrency by giving you an insider's look at what's being built and inform predictions on what the future holds. Today's episode is sponsored by BlockFi and Cogent Law Group. Our listeners can visit BlockFi.com slash SASMining for an exclusive offer for cryptocurrency management. And check out Cogent Law Group for all your legal needs. Rafael Cosman is the CEO and co-founder of Trust Token, makers of the world's first compliant, independently attested digital dollar TUSD and four other global fiat-backed stablecoins. Prior to Trust Token, Rafael helped build Street Code and has also worked at Google Brain, Palantir, and Kernel. And in his free time, you'll find Rafael reading or surfing. Welcome, Rafael. Thanks for having me, William. It's good to be on the podcast. Yeah, I'm extremely excited to have you on and to talk with you today because you're actually the first person that we've had on the podcast who's deep within the stablecoin world. So I'm sure we'll dive into that later on. But to start, could you just talk a little bit about your journey uh, up until this point and what led you to what you're working on today? Sure. Um, I got into um, coding when I was young and studied CS at Stanford. And after I graduated, um, after spending um, a little bit of time working, I decided I wanted to start a company with my friend. And we um, we started the company that ended up being Trust Token, you know, the makers of TrueUSD. And um, when we started the company, it was originally an estate planning company. So we made software that makes wills and trusts. And then about a year into the company, we saw what was happening in crypto and decided, wow, there's, we definitely need to be in a different business. And um, we, we particularly saw the growth of Tether. And I think at that time, Tether might have been passing, maybe it was like a billion dollars or something like that. And now, of course, it's $10 billion. But we thought, wow, this is, it's crazy that, you, that, you know, a product like Tether can get so big and yet it's still pretty, has a pretty negative reputation. Um, and isn't that compliant with international regulations? And so we thought, wow, there's, okay, there's a big opportunity here, clear demand for a product like Tether, but you know, they left the door open to do it in a much more trustworthy way. So we launched TreeUSD, and um, you know, the rest is history. Since then, TreeUSD has grown a lot. It's about 300-something million dollars in market cap right now. And uh, we've got four other stable coins that we've launched as well through Australian dollar, Canadian dollar, Hong Kong dollar, and British pound. And we're now coming out with a product that we haven't talked about very much publicly yet because um, it's still in the works, but it's probably going to be launching in the next uh, month or two. And it's called TrueFi. And it's a DeFi protocol for doing uncollateralized lending, which is wow. a pretty novel thing because almost all of DeFi, as you know right now, whether it's Aave or Compound or Maker, almost all of these systems do over-collateralized lending, and that's how they can be trustless. But how to do uncollateralized lending in a trustless way or at least a low-trust way, that is uh, very much an open problem. And yeah. 
think we have a we think we have at least part of the solution with TrueFi. Yeah, well, that first off is quite the pivot that you made from what you were doing before, and then uh, like every great entrepreneur, you, you saw the opportunity and uh, you know dove right in. So that that's amazing. Uh, but I guess to lay the groundwork for a lot of the things that we are going to dive into today, I actually didn't know about that product launch that was coming up. So I definitely want to dive into that later on. But just yeah. to start, could you talk a little bit about stable coins, what they are, why they're important, and how you guys uh, built your own stablecoin? Yeah, absolutely. So stablecoins are price-stable cryptocurrencies, and they're they're very important for crypto. In fact, they now make a very significant chunk of total crypto market cap and trading volume. And you know, Tether or another stablecoin is on one side of a very large fraction of all trades. And the reason for that is because people want to have their money in crypto for all the obvious reasons. You know, they want to be able to send it around the world almost instantly. They want to be able to hold it on all kinds of different apps or wallets or exchanges. They want all the advantages of cryptocurrencies. They just don't want the volatility. And that has been a perennial problem. And Tether and our product, TrueUSD, and USDC um, are three of the major fiat-backed stablecoins. So they achieve price stability by backing the token by U.S. dollars. There are other models, and the, the best-known one is Maker with DAI. But DAI is a stablecoin that is pegged to a dollar, but it's not backed by actual U.S. dollars. It's backed by over-collateralized Ether and other crypto assets. So you can lock up a dollar fifty of Ether, and then you can mint a DAI. And that's how the system is always collateralized. And it's a, it's a bit more complex than just having um, fiat reserves the way that TrueUSD does, but it also can be potentially more trustless because you can see everything that's going on directly on a smart contract. There aren't any banks that are operating off-chain that you have to rely on. So those are, those are two of the big models right now. And um, we think that there's a lot of potential um, both in under- and uncollateralized lending on-chain so there's a new product that we're developing there called TrueFi. And we also think that there's a lot of potential for stable coins that are not based on the U.S. dollar. Right now, almost the entire stablecoin market is about the U.S. dollar, and that makes sense because the U.S. dollar is one of the most trusted financial products globally, and it is the coin of global trade. But there are a ton of crypto users that are coming from Australia, from Europe, from Asia, from South America that have local fiat currencies that they want to be able to on-ramp easily into crypto, and they would love to be able to see, you know, when they're buying and selling Bitcoin or ETH or other assets, they would love to see those denominated in true Australian dollars rather than true USD. And so this, we think, is going to be another major wave for stable coins, and assets other than U.S. dollars, and that's something that we're pioneering as well. Yeah, and that's one of the interesting things as well, how – the most common one that everyone sees is how U.S. the stablecoin pegged to the U.S. dollar. There are multiple different types of stablecoins, and at least for people who aren't fully within that realm of working on stablecoin projects or everything else, it's kind of difficult to assess one stablecoin from another. So could you talk a little bit about what some of those differentiating factors are between, for example, your stablecoin versus another stablecoin like Tether or any other type of stable coin that's out there? Absolutely. Um, 
the 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 biggest thing that we've focused on because we were the first stablecoin to launch after Tether, the first fiat-backed stablecoin, and the biggest thing we focused on is trust and transparency, just to differentiate ourselves from some of the issues that Tether have been facing, and. We do that in a couple of ways. Um, one is that we're the only stablecoin to have real-time 24-7 audits. And this is, it's a pretty technology. We partnered with an accounting firm, a top 50 U.S. accounting firm to do that, and they connect directly to our banking partners and pull the information about the U.S. dollars that are backing True USD. And then they actually host on their website a data So that's, that's one, one way that we try to differentiate ourselves of, you know, Tether was having a lot of complaints for not being audited at all. And we went to the other extreme and said, let's set up a system for where we'll be the first stablecoin to ever be real-time audited. And we're actually now working on a project with some of the Chainlink oracles to be able to take that information about the collateralization of TrueUSD and actually put it on chain so that DeFi projects and smart contracts can actually can know that TrueUSD is collateralized, and they can, they can get a price feed or a data feed from an oracle showing the, that level of collateralization. And they could have certain kinds of stop losses or triggers if that collateralization level, level were ever to fall. Got it. And another question that I've, I've been wondering about recently is you hear a lot of different governments who are thinking about issuing their own digital currencies. Uh, China's been talking a lot about it, but there's also the potential that the U.S. government might at some point go and try and create their own type of uh, U.S. dollar coin, a uh, stable coin, whatever it might be. Could. Yeah. And in that type of a world, what happens to projects such as yours or Tether or any other uh, any other project that's tied and pegged directly to the dollar? Well, so it's. We certainly could. We certainly could see in the next couple of decades some major government-backed stablecoins. You know, the U.S. government is evaluating it, but it's very unlikely that anything would happen within the next couple of years, just because things like that move very, very slowly. These are even with Libra just being a large company, you know, the amount of of back and forth that has to happen with regulators is massive, and so if the Fed or, or the U.S. Treasury wanted to issue something similar, uh, a U.S. dollar stablecoin, it would be it would be years and years and years of discussion and design before it happened. I do think the Chinese are going to move more quickly, and they are actively working on a, a renminbi, a Chinese yuan stablecoin. But mm, I think that there will still be a place for companies such as ours, even in even in a world where there are more government-backed digital currencies, because we're, we're focused on connecting assets to the blockchain. You know, we've got five currencies so far. USD is just one of them. And down the road, we do think that blockchains are going to be a place where hundreds of different, different assets are traded. And a lot of the infrastructure that's being built today in DeFi, the best application of it will actually be when more real-world assets are put into these protocols. Because if, if you even look at DeFi today, Many people don't realize the extent to which stablecoins really are the killer use case for DeFi. Just, just as an example, the other day I was looking at the numbers for Compound, and I'm, I'm sure your viewers are, are familiar with Compound and Aave. They're, they are um, 
protocols for doing uh, lending and borrowing on the blockchain. And on Compound, they list nine different assets. And two of those assets that are both, both of them stable coins, th those two assets, when I looked at the numbers just recently, corresponded to 93% of the total amount of, of borrow, so the total outstanding borrow from the Compound protocol. And it's wow. not just Compound. We looked at Aave as well, which is another one of the major, um, major lending and borrowing protocols on the blockchain. And, and it was very, very similar numbers. About 92% of their total borrow was from stable coins. That means every, all the other cryptocurrencies all combined on Aave and Compound were making up 7 or 8% of the borrow. And stable coins were, were you know, more than 10x everything else combined in terms of actual demand for borrowing. So that's, that's very indicative that these assets are, are some of the most interesting assets for crypto and for DeFi. Um, and you do need things like Ethereum, which provide the basis for assets like TrueUSD and other stable coins to be traded. But when it actually comes to usage in DeFi for everyday people that want to earn, you know, 3%, 5% on their stable coin holdings, um, these non-volatile assets are actually much more interesting. Yeah, and I think that that's a, a good segue into the product that you were talking about earlier. Can you talk about how TrueFi works? Yeah, <laughs> I like so the term, by the way. <laughs> thank you. So TrueFi is a protocol for uncollateralized lending. So the way that a lot of these things like Compound Ave work is that you can put up, let's say, a dollar and fifty worth of ether, and then you can borrow a dollar of true USD. That's, that's an example of how it works on Aave. And that's, over, that's an over-collateralized loan because you're putting up $1.50 in collateral for a $1 loan. Now, the, these, these products have gotten a lot of traction, a ton of interest. Many of them have upwards of a billion dollars that's been deposited with them, which is very impressive. And that is part of what spurred so much interest and growth in DeFi recently and all the new projects that are coming up. But over-collateralized lending is only a very small piece of the pie. To be able to reach a much larger set of users and also to be able to offer higher interest rates to depositors, we're going to need to be able to have uncollateralized or at least under-collateralized lending in DeFi. And that's what TrueFi is meant to address. So the way that it works is you're going to be able to put TrueUSD or other true currencies into a pool, and then borrowers can apply to be able to borrow TrueUSD from this pool at an interest rate. And there's going to be a network of token holders that are holding a special token called Trust Tokens, which is going to be able to uh, approve or reject these loan applications. So you can think about it as a little bit like a decentralized loan officer, where every holder mm. of Trust Token is, is you know, it's like one Trust Token, one vote. And you, you can vote for or against these loans. And the trust token holders are incentivized to only vote on loans that they think are actually going to do well. So they are the ones that are acting as sort of a, a global decentralized loan officer assessing these applications. In the future, we're going to start with just one pool, and it's going to be designed to be fairly low risk in that we're going to be only having a very limited number of borrowers. They're going to be very reputable funds that we're, we're working with that you know are well-known names in crypto, have... Hundred millions of, hundreds of millions of dollars in our management, the very, very established players. But down the road, we're looking to open this up and have additional pools with different risk parameters. And some of them might be doing a larger number of smaller loans, 
And some of those might be defaults, but you know, the other ones, if they have high interest rates, could make up for that. So that's where we see it going down the line. That is such a fascinating application of blockchain technology. I, I mean, that's I'm I'm piecing it all together, right? And so I guess my my one question. I think it's really smart that you're starting with very reputable borrowers. I think that 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 this that's an incredible that this is an incredible incredible product. Um, I guess what. What happens, let's say I'm a token holder, right? And I am part of the voting process of whether or not we should approve this loan. How is that voting process actually taking place in real time if you're a token holder? And you're part of that, I guess, underwriting decision, whether you're deciding voting, yes, I want to give out this loan or no, I don't want to give out this loan. Yeah, so there's, so a borrower is going to submit an application saying, hey, you know, we're a big, we're a big trading firm. We want to get a $3 million loan, 11% APR for three months. And they submit that application. Then there's going to be a voting period of, let's say, seven days or 14 days when the trust token holders can vote yes or no on that loan. And to be able to pass, they have to be able, they have to, you know, exceed a certain threshold, a certain percentage of yes votes. But anyone that votes yes on that loan, if the loan is approved, then their trust tokens are now going to be staked on it. And if they do end up paying the loan back, then, then anyone, anyone who voted yes on it and staked on it is going to get a bonus. So they'll get, let's say, a 5% or 10% boost on their trust tokens as a way to reward them for voting in this loan, which ultimately helped everyone, helped the, helped the pool and helped the whole protocol. But if that loan defaults, then they're going to have some or all their trust tokens slashed. It's going to be burned. Um, similar to in proof of stake or other protocols, uh, if you you know do something wrong and you know end up harming the protocol, you're going to have your trust tokens burned. And what that does is that creates the right incentives. Where now, yeah. if you if, if if someone is very legit, if there's a very legit fund, they're very likely to repay the loan. Then you're you're economically incentivized to a very large extent to vote yes on that loan. But if they're not legit, then voting yes is an extremely dangerous proposition. And this also serves to, in addition to creating those incentives, it also serves to weed out over time uh, any trust token holders that are repeatedly, repeatedly voting on bad loans. They're going to lose their trust tokens, and they're going to no longer be a part of this decentralized network for assessing these loans. And we're going to be giving, you know, the protocol is going to be automatically giving more trust tokens to people that are voting in, you know, in a way that, end up being correct. So, so over time, that should shift the trust tokens uh, to be distributed you know, as well as possible to folks that are really adding value to the protocol. Yeah. Wow. So you've, you've even designed the incentives within that underwriting process to make sure that uh, the right loans are getting approved over time. And it almost kind of, the, the way that I could see this playing out over time is that you're going to get more and more very knowledgeable people who would understand how to properly underwrite these loans, getting involved with your network because they're incentivized economically to really participate. And I can definitely see this snowballing to, uh, to just becoming something that, that becomes more robust and gets used by more and more people. That's the idea. And we do think that if you create the right incentives, you'll get the right behavior. That's one of the core 
that's one of the core good ideas that crypto really brought along into the world. Just, you know, it's, it's very much applied game theory. And also, there are things that you can achieve when you have a decentralized network, like the all, all the trust token holders that we're going to be having globally, that you just you can't do if you're just one loan officer or a team of loan officers that are looking for these good loans to approve, you're going to be able to find things that, that an individual lender would never be able to find when you have a global network that's distributed and is all working together. Yeah. And so when this launches, how are you building up, I guess, that, that base, uh, the, the base token holders who are going to be participating right off the bat? Is there like a strategy behind that or how are you getting going to scale up to reach those initial network effects? Well, our goal is to distribute trust tokens quite widely. And this is a model that Compound and many other folks have, have been using quite successfully in, in, the, in the last few months especially. So anyone that deposits, anyone that provides liquidity into TrueFi that puts in TrueUSD, you know, that TrueFi is going to be lending out, they're going to start earning trust tokens as soon as they put in true USD. And that's going to help to bootstrap the liquidity of the protocol and get a lot of capital to come into TrueFi. But it's also, importantly, going to be putting the, putting the, the power of which loans, were, which loans the protocol is making in the hands of the users, giving, giving those trust tokens to TrueFi users, whoever they are. They could, be, they could be individual traders putting in $10 or $100 or $1,000. They could be big funds that are coming in. Whoever is putting true USD in, that's where we're going to be distributing trust tokens. And then also, we're likely going to be incentivizing liquidity providers on other protocols as well. So like people that provide liquidity to our tokens on a Uniswap or on Balancer or other protocols like that, um, giving them trust tokens as well. So all the folks that are participating in the ecosystem and are providing value are going to ultimately be the trust token holders that are going to be approving or rejecting loans and deciding where that capital goes. How did you bootstrap it, the project initially, to get to the volume that you have today? You said about $300 million market cap. It just is, it sounds kind of crazy to think, oh, well, you pivoted and then all of a sudden you got that type of traction and had that many people buying to your stable coin. Can, can you talk about how you made that process happen and you took the company through that leap? Yeah. I Well, it's, it's taking quite a while to get to this size where we've got $300 million in TrueUSD. TrueUSD has been around for something like two and a half years now, and it has been a, a long, slow process to get to this size. I think the the first you know, I remember when we launched it and we were at $5 million and they were like, wow, there's $5 million in TrueUSD and we got to $10 million, $10 million. And a lot of our growth, a lot of our growth in the first year or so, like over the course of a, a lot of 2018 was from just listing on major centralized exchanges. So TrueUSD is now traded on a lot of the big names of Binance and OKX and many other big uh, exchanges in the U.S. and abroad. But then recently, in, in 2020, most of our growth has come from uh, being supported on DeFi protocols. So things like Curve.Fi, which is a protocol that actually supports trading between stable coins. So they, they have a pool 
that has USDC and DAI and Tether and TrueUSD all together in one pool, and they provide liquidity between the stable coins. So that, that protocol actually has, has driven a lot of our growth recently and is holding um, some very large chunk, maybe 100 million, something like that, TrueUSD. And uh, it's, it's, it's been the popularity of DeFi that has, has really um, been the most valuable recently. Looking at it from your perspective, what do you see as the next phase of, of stable coins and, and of this industry? Right now, there's a lot of buzz around DeFi and all these different protocols, lending, borrowing, automation. But from your perspective, where do you think that this is all headed? Good question. So, so I think that DeFi is in a bit of a bubble right now. But that's okay, because I do think DeFi has a lot of value long term. And so even after this wave goes out, another wave will come in down the road. The fundamental idea of DeFi building blocks, small, recomposable pieces that you can make more powerful financial products out of, that is a fundamentally very powerful idea. And that is why I think that DeFi will win, or at least will have a very valuable role to play in finance. Yeah, I think it will have a larger role to play in the future um, because the idea of DeFi building blocks is a very powerful idea. Small, composable protocols that can be used together to create all kinds of different financial products. That is a fundamentally powerful idea, and conventional finance does not have anything that can really compete with that. You can see that if you just look at it, even like, let's take something like Uniswap, which is a decentralized exchange, and something like Aave, which is a, a borrowing and lending protocol. So, so you can take, you can take uh, something like TrueUSD and Ether, and you can put them into Uniswap, and then you can get LP tokens, liquidity provider tokens, that represent your deposit into Uniswap. And now you know, people can trade with that liquidity that you put in. But then you can take those LP tokens, and you can go to a lending and borrowing protocol like Aave, which if it supports them, you can actually then loan out those LP tokens. And so just the way that you can, can take these protocols and combine them together to create new things, is, it's very powerful. So one trend that we're betting on is from, from over-collateralized lending to under- and uncollateralized lending. That, we think, is going to be a big one. Second trend that we're betting on is that a more diverse set of stable coins is going to power the next few years of DeFi. And, the, and, and most people are not, are not really realizing the extent to which DeFi today is, is overwhelmingly driven by the use of stable coins. I think actually the 2020 explosion in DeFi that we're seeing could not have happened in 2017 because there weren't the stable coins that were necessary. There was basically only mm. Tether at the time and, and DAI was just getting started. But uh, at that point, I think you could not have had the, kind, the, the proliferation of DeFi protocols that we're seeing today. You've got to have much, a much larger number of different stable coins to use. And we think it's going to be, um, it's going to go a lot beyond just USD and other currencies and other assets in the next few years. From the standpoint of someone who's, let's say they understand DeFi, they understand not only the mechanics of it, but they actually think that it's a good idea. It's where the future's headed, but they are in the crypto space, but they're not actively participating in these different types of protocols. What would you say to them at this point in time if they're not actively participating, but they want to get involved? 
I would say, I would say, get your hands on some stable coin like True USD, <laughs> and and put it in something like Ave, which is a very trusted protocol with something like a billion dollars of deposits already. And that's a great way to, to get some exposure to it. Um, try out DeFi, and you and you don't have to be hopping on the latest DGen craze. <laughs> to be, you know, just earning earning a good interest rate and, and getting some benefit from DeFi. But also, I'd say to a large extent, we're still building stuff. Like, it's going to be, a, it's going to probably be a couple more years before we've got applications that are ready for the big leagues, for having, you know, hundreds of millions or a billion plus users come in and start to take advantage of what we've built. And so... And so in some sense, everyone in crypto right now is still an early adopter. And, and we're, you know, we're going to get to the point at some point where crypto is like the Internet. It's like TCP IP where everyone's using it, but only 1% of the population or less really understands how the thing works. And that's okay. Yeah. That's in some sense as it should be, right? You know, we all, a lot of us drive cars that, you know, only a tiny fraction of people actually know how to fix one. That's fine. So crypto will get there, and uh, and and it's it's going to take several years, but it's going to be big when it does. Yeah, I definitely share that that type of a view. Where I think that if you really want to reach mass adoption, you want to build products that are so good and compelling for people to use, and they don't even need to know that there's a blockchain aspect to that product. They're just using it because it accomplishes or solves whatever problem that they're facing. And I think that the companies out there that are able to build those products and find that product market fit and serve customers the best are really going to see the, the fruits of their labor later on. But right now, they're all building. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that, that we're going to get to the point where, you know, so crypto is – you know, it's internet money. I think that's actually it's a good way to think about it. It's internet money. And there aren't that many different things that one does with money, right? Like you invest it, you save, and you earn an interest rate, you spend it. Uh, you, you should be able to, you know, send it to other people and other businesses. You know, basically it. Like, you know, those are, those are pretty much the only things you do with money. It, that, that's what people mean when they say money, money is commoditized, you know. It's just... It's just one investment product or another, or one interest rate or another. You know, the, these, these products aren't that unique. And so the, the way that crypto is going to win in the world of money is fairly simple. It already can be sent to anyone, anywhere in the world, 24-7, almost instantly, and fairly cheaply. That's a big deal. That's a big level up compared to, like, sending an international bank wire. But... I think that the thing that, that DeFi is, is developing right now that's going to really make crypto more competitive uh, in terms of getting, you know, becoming a part of, of, of more people's lives is being able to offer a higher interest rate. So there's going to come a time when you're going to open up your banking app, you're going to open up Robinhood or PayPal or your Chase app, whatever it is, and instead of earning you know, 0.01% like I am right now in my Chase account, you're going to be earning 2% or 3%. And it, this is going to be for everyday consumers, folks that have, have 
little understanding or knowledge of crypto, but, but crypto is going to get to the point where these protocols are so established, they're so trusted, they've been around for so many years and have not lost people's money, and, and you're going to have something like Aave, something like Maker, be involved in a conventional consumer finance app like a PayPal or uh, a Square, and someone's going to be someone's going to have their high yield high yield uh, account in there, earning two percent, earning three percent, and it might have a little disclaimer saying like, hey, you know, we use crypto when we use this the following DeFi protocols to earn this interest rate, and they may not really understand it, but there's a lot of things that banks do with people's money that they don't understand anyway. The thing that yeah. matters is that it's actually low risk, yeah. and we're we're still we're very far away from from is from established you know, fintech companies or established banks feeling comfortable with, um, with these types of, of crypto products for their consumers. But um, we're going to get there. And every day that goes by that, this, that stable coins like TrueUSD are still stable, still worth a dollar, and protocols like Aave are still solvent, still haven't lost anyone's money. You know, every day that goes by, these things are earning trust, and they are continuing to provide returns that systematically beat what you're making with conventional banks and conventional U.S. dollars. And so that edge is, is what's going to ultimately win. That's what's going to ultimately increase crypto's total market share when it comes to global money. Well said. Thank you. <laughs> you need like the mic drop after that. <laughs> Yeah, that's awesome. And so my question is, how is the treasury management of very large public companies going to change over time? Recently read about how, uh, I, th I believe the name is MicroStrategy, they made it part of their treasury management plan to rather than holding U.S. dollars, they just put, uh, they just bought a bunch of Bitcoin and they're saying, this is how we're going to protect some of our money. And yeah. I have a prediction that over time, we're going to see more and more institutions just have Bitcoin as part of their uh, investment strategy, part of their reserves. And I think that really when people are going to look back and say this accomplished what we saw, saw that was possible and accomplished everything that everyone in crypto has been talking about is when every single country around the world has a part of their uh, treasury held in Bitcoin. And at that point, I think that the value of one Bitcoin is going to be astronomically high compared to where it is today. Yeah, I somewhat agree, somewhat disagree. I think we are going to at some point see very widespread use by governments and large corporations of crypto. I don't know if it's going to be Bitcoin. I'm a lot more bullish about crypto in general than I am about Bitcoin specifically. And the reason for that is I think Bitcoin is likely always going to be very volatile. And if we're trying to convince a big corporation or a government to put money into crypto, I think our strongest bet is going to be if we can say, look, we've got things like stable coins that have been around for years and have been completely stable and are fully backed and you can really trust them. They're rock solid. And we've got protocols in DeFi that have, been, that have been around for years and have been holding billions of dollars and are very, very solid and are completely audited. And you can earn an interest rate on 
these DeFi protocols that kicks the butt of whatever you're earning on normal U.S. dollars. That, I think, is going to be – I think that's a much more reliable sell for us as an industry if our goal ultimately is to close corporations and governments and banks and convince them that they should be using crypto. And the two things we have to work on are reality and perception. And right now, the reality is pretty decent. You know, if you look at the best, if you look at the best protocols and you look at very trustworthy stable coins, you know, these things are reliable and they, they provide good interest rates that really are a lot better than what you get on the U.S. dollar. And um, the perception right now is still lagging behind that, and that makes complete sense because it's still only been a handful of years that these things have been around. Once we get to five years, 10 years, 20 years, then it's going to be a lot harder to argue that these things are going to, oh, they're going to suddenly implode. implode. Well, okay, why did if they suddenly implode? Why didn't they implode any time over the last two decades that they've been around? You know, that's where, you know, Bitcoin has established a track record of security, which is why people are very confident that the blockchain is not going to get hacked, but it has, does not have a track record and it probably will never have a track record of stability. And that's what I think a lot of folks want. So yes, you might put, it might decide, yeah, I want to put a little bit of my portfolio into Bitcoin and take a flyer on it, and I think it might go up, might go down. But I don't think that that's going to be a – I don't think that that's ever going to be a reliable sell where we can, where we can say, look, we've got – we as an industry have a set of products that are just better than whatever you've got right now, and you should be using them. And if you're not convinced, then give us another year. Give us another two years. Give us another five years. You'll be convinced because we're going to keep performing at a level that you will not be able to deny. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm really glad we we started diving down this rabbit hole because I never I, I never included that part within that that prediction as well. I wasn't thinking about how stable coins would also become part of it. I'm a little bit more disconnected from DeFi as I'm sure you are compared to you because you're building in it every single day, and I can definitely see. Uh, that being part of the future that's outlined in how this space continues to grow and we see government adoption. I mean, the way that you laid it out, that makes that definitely makes sense. I, the one other piece that I would add on top of both of the that what you just outlined as well as what I just outlined is from a government's perspective, you're looking at a couple of different variables for each of these. So you outlined a great reason why there would be a growth of stable coins and other types of protocols that they get involved with. Uh, I think that from the Bitcoin point of view, one of the powerful aspects within that is the decentralization that is built with into the protocol and the, the distribution of, of the hash power, for example. So just as what we saw recently happening with all the different uh, central banks and printing of, of, uh, of dollars out of, out of thin air, in a sense, yeah. uh, that's something that you can't do with Bitcoin, for example. It's got the most transparent monetary supply of any currency in the sense that you know exactly how much is going to be mined. You know when uh, the next distributions are going to be made. You know how that those distributions are determined, how much Bitcoin is being given out per block, and how every number, every 210,000 blocks, that reward being paid out to the miners is cut in half. And I think that... Uh, that's one of the reasons why I can see t- c- kind of combining both the, both 
what you just outlined and kind of what I thought previous to this conversation, I could see governments actually in the future getting exposure to both, whereas you have one in Bitcoin where you have the decentralization aspect and then you have these protocols and these stable coins that have proven themselves over time to be reliable and another place where finance continues to evolve to. Yeah, I, I think that Bitcoin and, and similar coins will have a role to play. And, and there's no question that that decentralization is valuable. And if we were in an apocalyptic scenario and the financial system was melting down and, you know, people were, were, were rioting in the streets and, and, you know, the U.S. dollar was, was crashing, you know, in that situation, I think, I think Bitcoin would be crucial. And it might be one of the one of the best investments, one of the only forms of money that one could one could depend on or could use in a truly apocalyptic scenario. <laughs> so I, I do think Bitcoin has a tremendous amount of value there. I think I think we're going to see you know the future of crypto. I think it's going to be a mix of purely digital assets like Bitcoin and tokenized real world assets like TrueUSD or TrueGBP. But also, if you look at what, what is actually getting traction and growing over the long term, you know, Bitcoin is right now trading at something like 10K, you know, some pretty significantly lower than its peak in 2017. And it is, it is going to continue to be driven by, you know, hype phases where it pumps up and then depressions where it crashes down. And it may over the long term continue to, to continue to go up from here, but I think it's uh, I think it's it's not clear which what what the what the long term future is going to hold. But if you yeah, I, that I actually think it goes back to what you said earlier too, with like perception and reality, right? And so uh, just going off of what you're talking about with Bitcoin, the price now is is obviously much lower than the highs at, at twenty thousand. And I yeah. think that like the perception is outlined in the price, right? I mean, that's that's kind of what's driving it. You have it was 20,000. Now it's 10,000. And then I think the, the reality aspect of it is by analyzing the hash power and what's been happening on the mining landscape. And what we've seen is an enormous increase in the amount of hash power on the network, not purely driven by the increase in sophistication of the mining hardware, where, yes, we went from uh, older generation miners to smaller nanometer chips. Uh, where you just have more efficiencies, you can have greater hash power. But the reality is, is that there's a lot of my, there's a lot being built on the mining front. And I think that that's almost like a price floor that's helping drive baseline, um, baseline value to the network. Uh, people are still investing in mining. That, that's, that is to a certain extent just following Moore's law. In, in, in the long term. I mean, we, of course, we moved from CPUs to GPUs to ASICs, but now that we're on ASICs, isn't it basically just going to follow Moore's law over time? Oh, with the That's increase. In, I, I had a discussion. Hash power? Yeah, this is actually very interesting that we ended up here because I had a conversation about this specific topic for like an hour and a half the other day with, with a few people who are in, in the semi, um, yeah, in, in that industry. So they, we were talking about Moore's law and we were having uh, two, two guys who are far more technical than myself. I was more of like a fly on the wall for this discussion, but they're talking about Moore's law and is it dead? And one of the participants in the conversation was talking about how it looks like Moore's law is dead when it comes to 
these types of equipment. And the other guy was talking about how, although it seems like that Moore's Law has been consistent since, uh, I forget how many years, probably like like 50 years or something like that, like a while. And he ended up sending over a video showing how Moore's Law has stayed consistent over um, over like the past 50 years. But recently in the in these in the phase that we've been in, we haven't seen that next huge jump. But if you just assume that Moore's Law is going to continue, then we're going to see another huge jump in that hardware. And so I guess going. The thing is, uh, you, so I, 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 I agree with you. That Moore's Law specifically may not continue to hold because we're getting close to some of the actual physical limits here with seven nanometer chips. I mean, yeah. it's really, really small. You can't get that much smaller. <laughs> but um, the and because Moore's Law specifically was about number of transistors on a chip. But yeah. we're still seeing a lot of growth. It's just coming in other ways. Like we're having more cores per CPU, more cores per GPU. And so the actual dollar per flop might be a, a, a better metric, like inflation adjusted dollar per flop, I think that's going to continue to drop, even yeah. if Moore's Law specifically is not holding. Yeah, and I, I also think that, that that definitely makes sense. Because um, it, that's, it, it's, it gets even like deeper than that too when you're looking at just the overall pricing of like when you're going from a seven nanometer chip to a five nanometer chip and how, how high in demand is that five nanometer chip where if you're a manufacturer and you're thinking, okay, well, if I'm going to manufacture this ASIC and I have to pay this much to build a five nanometer chip, then it wouldn't necessarily be worth it because the demand for that five nanometer is too high, which also from like right. a miner's point of view, we're, we're trying to figure out where the industry's going. And that's one of the things that is making it more difficult for there to be a, a huge leap in the next type of generation hardware that comes out that may be five nanometer. Um, I mean, it's really hard to say exactly what's going to happen or if there's going to be a generational, like an enormous leap in Moore's Law with some other type of chip that might come out. I know that there are some companies that, um, some of which I'm, I'm in very close contact with, that are working on very interesting technologies that, uh, that could have huge ramifications for compute power. Uh, yeah. And that's where I'll, I'll leave that. Um, but it's really interesting to kind of see what's being built. And I guess no one really knows until you kind of get to that phase. But um, I do I do think that the future for Bitcoin is very strong. And I think that just similar to how you've set up great incentives with your protocol, and I think it's going to be um, a very great product. I mean, just after diving into it with you, I think that Bitcoin shares many of those characteristics and it has many uh, incentives that work for it in the long run. But then again, you never know. I could easily be overlooking one or two variables. But um, <laughs> the, the way I see it, I think that Bitcoin's got a very strong, very strong future. Yeah, I think that I think that Bitcoin, Bitcoin certainly can have a very strong future. Um, but I do think that that stable coins are going to be an increasingly large share of overall what crypto is doing. Just looking, if you look at the numbers, you know, in 2017, you know, while, while crypto today looks somewhat like 2017 overall, the growth of stable coins, you know, stable coins are in a radically different situation. In 2017, yeah. there's basically one stable coin. It was Tether. And their market cap at the beginning of 2017 was something like $15 million. 
Really? I actually did not know that. Fifteen million. <laughs> Beginning of twenty seventeen. That's right. Well, wow. well, well. Of course, you know, crypto was at an all time high. You know, Bitcoin trading at, you know, seventeen thousand, nineteen thousand, and then they quickly grew into the hundreds of millions, and now into the billions, and at today they're about nine or ten billion dollars in uh, Tether. And you've got other stable coins like USDC, like TrueUSD, that, that have very significant market caps in the hundreds of millions. So that is, that is just an unbelievable growth of the industry. And now people are looking both for equity-like products that could go up 10x, but also they're looking for more like you know, debt-like products which can go up 10%, but can be much lower risk. Um, I do think that, that the, the changes in computing are very interesting and in that um, if we can successfully build uh, you know, quantum computers, computers that use light instead of electrons, there's a lot of potential for what it could do to this industry. But I think even without changes in computing, that the amount that can be done just using uh, smart contracts and blockchains as they're currently designed is still tremendous. Yeah, definitely. I mean, look at how big the financial, like the in, the industry of just finance as a whole, everything runs on finance. And this is a better way to uh, really build out that system. And your, your company is part of that movement of the companies within DeFi and crypto that are really trying to build the system from the ground up. That just takes time. It does, yeah. I'd like to thank BlockFi for sponsoring today's episode. BlockFi provides wealth management products for crypto investors. I personally hold my crypto with BlockFi because they pay me up to 6.2% interest annually on all of my crypto holdings. At SAS Mining, we've hooked up all of our listeners with a special sign-up bonus. All you have to do is go to BlockFi.com slash SASMining and sign up. Again, visit BlockFi.com slash SASMining for an exclusive bonus offer. It's a no-brainer to earn additional interest with BlockFi. Today's episode is also made possible by Cogent Law Group. Finding reliable legal representation in blockchain is one of the biggest challenges when building a business. You need to make sure that you work with a law firm that understands the legal frameworks that apply to the industry and has the ability to strategically help you grow your business. When researching law firms for SAS Mining, I found that Cogent Law Group checked all of the boxes. Not only do their lawyers have expert level experience, but they also understand the blockchain industry. Cogent Law Group gives you access to high-end lawyers without breaking the bank. So I'm actually very curious for this next question I'm going to ask. It's not crypto related, but what is your favorite book? Ooh. Are you like a are you a are you a fiction guy or are you what type of what type of books do you read? I read a combination of fiction and nonfiction. I like to balance it. I'd say okay, my favorite nonfiction books are um, I'll give you three. Okay. All right. One is the Fifteen Commitments of Conscious Leaders. Uh, the Fifteen Commitments of Conscious Leadership, and it is a amazing book about how to lead and live. Um, another one is Getting Things Done by David Allen. You might have heard of that one. Yep. That's just like, that is the Bible when it comes to productivity. 
<laughs> and final one that most folks haven't heard of, it's called Good and Real. And it is, I think, one of the best descriptions of how reality works at the deepest level, like what is likely going on at the very bottom of physics if you drilled all the way down. Um, all three of those books are ones that have significantly changed how my, my perspective on the world. In terms of fiction, um, when I was young, I really loved uh, Ender's Game. I'm sure yes, that book is that a lot. great. <laughs> it's a great book. Very inspiring. You're the first and one then, that said it, actually. Really? No one, no one has said Ender's Game. We've gotten oh, like Brave New World. We've gotten like 1984. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Catcher oh, in the Rye. We've gotten all that. these highbrow books. Folks aren't being honest with you. <laughs> um, but but recently, um, my my new favorite sci-fi author is a guy named Greg Egan. And if you're looking for something to start with, I'd recommend Permutation City. But he writes some like some very thoughtful and also ex ex what I think are some of the most realistic visions for what the future of humanity can hold. And I actually I think that most people severely underestimate, even people in technology, I think, oftentimes severely underestimate the amount of change that we're likely to see in our lifetimes. Because you just extrapolate forward, you know, I'm 27. I grew up with using floppy disks when I was a kid. You know, we basically didn't have the internet back then. And just thinking about the fact that today we've got, you know, crypto and Uber and Snapchat and the gazillion different things. Um, what is the next, if I can reasonably expect to live for another 50 years as a, a fairly healthy American, you know, what am I likely to see in my lifetime? It's crazy. And I think that, um, that one, part of the purpose of sci-fi, and Greg Egan does this particularly well, is to show us what that can look like if we build it. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. I think that uh, people far underestimate the, the rate of change within technology and just how quickly people will adapt new types of technology. I mean, yeah. just like going, you, you laid it out right there. Just when you were younger, the internet was just like, I mean, yes, it was there technically, but yeah. it's not like it was used. I mean, today you couldn't, you couldn't operate without the internet. You couldn't operate without a smartphone. I mean, how quickly did that happen? How, how many years have smartphones been around? They've been around, um, like just over, uh, is it like 10 or 20 years, 20 years, 10 years? Can't, something like that. Yeah. Very short period of time. And something that yeah. every single person is completely relying on. You can't imagine uh, life without it. Yeah. So sci-fi oh, almost oh. gives a map for the future. Like what people want to build, these are possibilities. And then kind of just takes people to go out and try and make it happen. Yeah, it is. I think also the, um, I think this this is why I think it's it's technology is a good place to be if folks are you know thinking about where to be career wise technology is a great place if you look at just just what right what today are the most valuable companies in the world as as you know you and I both folks that are building companies you know you just go down the list it's tech companies all the top mm -hmm. you know and most of this is technology that just didn't exist a lot of it just didn't exist when I was born. You know, or or was invented you know, at, at, within the last in the last few decades. Many of it, you know, Microsoft, Apple, Amazon, 
Alphabet slash Google, Facebook, Alibaba. These are the world's most valuable companies. And 50 years ago, you could not have imagined what these companies were doing because the, the technology just didn't exist. So yeah. I think that the, that the same thing is likely going to be true of the future, that the, 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 the products and technologies that are going to exist 20, 30 years from now, and you and I are going to live to see it, uh, they're going to be things that are difficult for us to even imagine today. And, and the companies that are going to be the most valuable companies in the world might be ones that we've never heard of and that haven't even been founded yet. And they're going to yeah. be worth, you know, a trillion, two trillion dollars. Yeah, and that's really interesting. So going back to that, that third book, yeah, wh where do you want to start? I haven't read it, so uh, you can lay, lay the groundwork and we can, we can go back and forth on it. Okay, so okay, I'll, I'll give you the groundwork. You've got to read the book to, to really, to really <laughs> get it all. I'll give you enough to hopefully be enticing. So um, the, it's written by this guy, Gary Drescher, and the title Good and Real is like the two things he's trying to investigate in this book is really um, good and real. What is and what, well, real, what is, and, sh and good, what it should be. What should be and what is. Those are the two main things he's trying to investigate. And what he... What he claims is that we can actually achieve a logical, even a mathematical foundation for both questions, which is a somewhat shocking claim because most Very people shocking. would not at all believe that, that morality or ethics could possibly have a mathematical basis that, can, that could actually be discerned by humans. That's, that's just a radical idea, but he mm -hmm. thinks that the... And, and, and after reading his book and thinking about it a lot, I'm actually somewhat convinced that, um, that Western thought threw, out, threw in the towel too soon on trying to really drill down to the very core of reality and the very core of morality in order to try to find a rational, logical basis. And that is, that's part of what, that's part of what's wonderful about Western thought is, you know, the enlightenment and, and where the U.S. comes from and the idea that, that we can actually figure out ways to improve ourselves and improve our society and create, create things that are going to be better for everyone. Um, that, uh, that process, you know, which, which science has been pushing along for centuries, um, he thinks is going to eventually be able to crack this code. Wow. All right, so I got some questions. I guess like okay. the initial Hit question, me. and it might be too much to explain. Uh, it might just be that I have to read the book. So I guess if you're getting down to the very crux of that jump, so on the on the good part of of this, uh, yep. The on the good part, when he's talking about how you can mathematically make decisions on more, there's a mathematical basis within how you can tie morality. To what decision should be made? How how are you making the leap between, or how is he making the leap and arguing the leap that those are those are tied? You know, okay. the mathematics and then the morality and how you can derive morality from some sort of mathematics or basis in physics. I guess that's like really what I'm I'm wondering. How did that jump get made? I I agree. I, I know, <laughs> and that's that's what you got to read the book for because it's yeah, not easy. I guess I got to read what, the book. <laughs> I mean, the yeah, the core question is is um, why would you think that there could be a mathematical basis for morality? It's extremely non-obvious. But I'll just give you a simple example. 
You're familiar with the prisoner's dilemma? Yeah. Okay, so... You, you can out, outline it, though, just in case someone hasn't heard of the prisoner's dilemma. Okay, so yeah, the formulation of the prisoner's dilemma that I really like goes like this. It says, um, Will, you and I are going to be in separate rooms, and each of us has to decide. Either we are going to get $1 ourselves, or we can have the other person get $2. So if both of us choose the selfish option, we're both going to walk away with $1. If both of us decide to be nice and give the other person $2, we both walk away with $2. But if I defect and I keep $1 for myself, and you were, were choosing to cooperate, and you chose to give me $2, I'm going to get 3 you're going to get nothing. Right, so you cooperated, I defected, you ended up screwed, and I got three bucks. So that's the prisoner's dilemma. Now, the reason why this is interesting from a game theory standpoint is that you is that the the dominant strategy is to defect. Defecting dominates cooperating, and that's a technical term. What that means is, um, if if I knew that you were going to defect and keep a dollar from yourself for yourself, then it's then my options, you know, if I defect and keep a dollar, then I get, I get one dollar. If I cooperate, I get nothing, right? And you get three bucks. So I should clearly, it's better for me if I defect, right? Now, if I knew you were going to cooperate and give me the two dollars, then my two options, either I can defect and I end up with three, or I cooperate and I end up with two. So it's still better for me to defect. So that logic would say, maybe I should just always defect. That's what, that's what it means for defecting to be a dominant strategy. Defecting dominates cooperation is that, is that regardless of what the other person does, you, you know, if you, if you, if you condition on, on the, what the other person does, regardless of, you know, if you say, that we, let's say we know they're cooperating, we know they're defecting, you know, you defecting will still, be, will still end up with you getting more money. So it seems, like, it seems like rational strategy in this game would be to always defect. But if everyone always defected, everyone gets $1. And if everyone did the quote-unquote irrational thing and cooperated, then everyone would get $2. Right? So the technical, the technical term there is that the Nash equilibrium does not lie on the Pareto frontier. That is what makes this game interesting. Um, but you can get stuck in a situation where everyone's always defecting, and, that's, and to a certain extent this is a model of what happens in the world where everyone is, is fighting over shared resources, there's a tragedy of the commons, we're building up our nuclear arsenals, we're, we're, we're going to war with other countries, you know, and there's a lot of defecting happening, and if if there could be more coordination and cooperating in the world, potentially everyone could win. But it's very difficult to actually make that happen. So here's an interesting twist on the prisoner's dilemma. Is imagine if you were playing prisoner's dilemma against your clone. So let's say I've got your clone in the other room, okay? This is an exact clone of you. This, this is a person who atom for atom is the same as you will. Now, you have to decide if you're going to cooperate or defect. What do you do? I would do whatever I was does the clone know that i'm also that that I'm the one in the other room? The clone knows that he's also playing against his clone, just like how you know that you're playing against your clone okay, in that case, I would give the money you give him the money the two bucks yeah, that's right, and why would you do that because I know that he's going to give me the money and I'm going to give him the money. <laughs> right. Yeah. Because if that's your thought process, then if this person is actually Adam for Adam identical to you, then yeah. that's probably going to be their thought process too. And then you'll cooperate. Yeah. That is so interesting. I've never, I've never had someone have, have me do that thought experiment. 
Yeah, by the way, um, we actually, I know, I know these twins, and we actually did this with them, and I think they ended up defecting. Um, very foolish. <laughs> so both of them, you know, each one thought, oh, I'm going to go trick the other one, right? Yeah. Of course, yeah. they both think that. Um, but, um, so yeah, you cooperate with the club. That makes yeah. complete sense. And so what's going on there is that, um, you know, you and your clone, you're, you're, two, you're two different, you're two humans, but <coughs> because you're clones, because I've, I've said that you're clones, you know, you are almost certainly going to think in exactly the same way. I've said you're mm-hmm. Adam, Adam identical, so you're almost certainly going to think in exactly the same way. And so, and so you, you can pretty safely assume that if you cooperate, that just as you are thinking in your own head, okay, I'm going to decide I'm going to cooperate, your clone is probably thinking in his head exactly the same thing. Yeah, I'm going to also cooperate, right? Yeah. And if you thought, oh, let me try to trick him because he's going to think, he's going to think that we're going to cooperate because then I'm going to actually defect, right? If you try that, he's probably thinking exactly the same thing, and then you're both going to defect, right? Yeah. And it's going to be a bad situation. So, 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 so a way that this starts to lead you towards an ethical basis to morality is to see that um, there's this perfect correlation between you and your clone. But let's say instead of playing against a clone, you were playing against another human like me. You and I are not clones, but we do have a lot in common. You know, we're both guys living in the West, some of the same, same interests in crypto and you know, clearly on the same wavelength on many things. And so while the correlation between what you will play in the prison dilemma and what I will play, it's not, it's not 100%. It's not one. It's not a correlation of one the way it is if you're playing against your clone, but it's also not zero, right? It's, it's not the same as if I said you're playing against an alien and you have no understanding of the alien, or you're playing against this computer algorithm, and I'm not telling you anything about this, the computer, what the computer algorithm is going to do, right? There, the correlation might be zero. But if I said, okay, if I said you're playing against a random human on planet Earth, well, you have a little bit in common with a random human on planet Earth, but not that much. But if you said you're playing against me, you've got a lot more in common with me. And if I said you're playing yeah. against your, your non-identical twin brother, that would be a lot more correlation, but still not 100%. Right? And if I said you're playing against your exact Adam for Adam clone, that's 100% correlation. And so depending on what that correlation is, the same logic can also apply. Where if, even if you're completely selfish and you don't care about helping me, you just want to get the most thing for yourself, the most money for yourself. If you're playing against a clone, you can see how logically, even if you're completely selfish, you still should cooperate because you know that they're going to do what you're going to do. The same yeah. applies. The same applies to a more limited extent if you're playing against someone whom you have some things in common with, like even if you're just both humans, um, but are not clones with. There's still some correlation between what you will do and what I will do. And so it really is the case that if you and I are play, playing the, the prisoner's dilemma, and if you go in your room and you start thinking to yourself, ooh, I think I'm going to trick him and he's going he's <laughs> to cooperate and I'm going to defect and he wants to see this coming, right? There really is a decent probability that if that's what you're thinking, that I'm thinking exactly the same thing in my room and that's going to come out and we're both going to defect, just like a, with your clone. You know, you yeah. do that and both defect. So that's just a little teaser to give you a sense of how you can get, how you can derive sort of a game theoretic and mathematical basis to what seems like altruistic behavior between people, depending upon how much they have in common with each other. Yeah. 
Well, I, after hearing that, I'm definitely going to have to check out the book. It, it's almost like we just ran like a sponsorship for that book, because I'm sure that anyone who was listening to that is going to want to go and read this book now, because that, that is fascinating. I've never, never thought about it that way. Um, yeah, it's, I definitely, truly, it's truly an excellent book. I really recommend it. I'm not, I don't get paid by Gary Drescher to advertise this book. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, I'm sure that we could dive in on this for, for much longer, and I do have some other questions about this. But um, just before we wrap up, can, are there any places online that anyone who's listening, they can connect with you or the company or any other uh, places that you think that they should uh, check out? Yeah, folks should follow. They can follow me on Twitter at Raphael Cosman, R-A-F-A-E-L-C-O-S-M-A-N, and also at Trust Token, our company. And we've got some exciting announcements coming out soon about FUFI and other things that we're developing and would love to hear folks talk about them. Yeah, definitely. Well, man, this was a lot of fun. Uh, it was incredible, incredible just hearing you talk through that prisoner's dilemma. Uh, it's almost like like you had practiced it beforehand. That's how good it was. Like it was just laid out like step by step by step. That was awesome. Thanks again for coming on. We'll have to do this again sometime soon. My pleasure. Would love to. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Thank you for listening to this episode of the SAS Mining Podcast. Be sure to follow us on social media and YouTube for the latest updates and previews of upcoming episodes. Full episodes and transcripts can be found on sasmining.com every Thursday. If you want to hear us interview a particular guest on a future episode, please reach out to us at podcast at sasmining.com.